So Daniel 11 is where we are tonight or this evening. Um, we're going to read verse 29 through 35 in the in the New Living Translation. So verse uh, 29 of Daniel chapter 11. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south. But this time the result will be different. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He will flatter and win over those who violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. Wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. Thanks, Jerry. When I started prepping this passage, Pastor Ross turned to me and said, this is the hardest passage in Bible to preach, she thinks. And so going into prep, I had a really negative view of this passage, and I hated it, honestly. For the last two weeks, uh, Joanna and I and several kids have been sick, and we've been battling it, so prepping this has been hard, but today I found breakthrough. Um, I just kept going at this text, and finally it opened up, and I'm so excited. God's Word is so good. Even chapters that seem obscure and hard, if you just keep going to it with the right heart, God can show you gold. And I found gold in here, and I want to, I want to, I want to give it to you. I want to feed you. And so I'm so excited for this bread, this feast that we're about to have in God's Word. Quick little announcement thing. Um, those prayer guides are available for you um, if you want to pray for Muslims during Ramadan. And it already started, but if you want to, you can still grab it um, when we take the Lord's Supper together. And um, all right, that's it. Let me pray. All right, Father. We need you, and we keep praying, and it feels redundant. We, we've had so many prayers. Tony's prayed, Jerry's prayed, a lot of us prayed, now I'm praying. And, and yet, Lord, we know that if your spirit doesn't move, this word just can fall onto the hardest hearts and just bounce right off. So I pray that you'd empower me to be faithful to your word, and you would speak through your word mightily right now. And for all our friends who are sick, it seems like a cold has just struck through our church this last couple weeks. I pray that you would be with them in their weakness. And if they're tuning in, you'd speak to them. Even through the limitations of, of, of technology, you would meet every one of our members right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we were given a backstage pass into the supernatural realm. We get a little glimpse of what's behind all of the physical Whenever we see a physical war, know that there's always a spiritual war behind it. Everything is, in one sense, spiritual. And so chapter 10 gave us this picture, this 
angelic war that is happening behind scenes that oftentimes we are oblivious to. And when we pray, we just think of the natural, but this supernatural realm is happening. Now today in chapter 11, we get not a sneak peek of the supernatural, but of the future. The future from Daniel's point of view, but also for us eventually the future from our point of view. The angel Gabriel is still speaking to Daniel at this point, so it's a continuation. So it's not just something brand new in this chapter, but it's helpful to break it up for the sake of space. And Daniel is mourning over the state of Israel, over the state of his people. Because at this point, some of his people have already returned back to the homeland. They have returned from exile, and yet the problem is it seems like they're still in exile, which is perplexing for them. They're back in their physical space, but the spiritual restoration is yet to come. And so Daniel is mourning. His heart is gripped. He is in in some ways paralyzed with pain. And he's longing and asking God, God, what are you up to in this painful and unexpected situation? And how many of us have prayed that same prayer in the last year? God, what are you up to? Every single time you see another headline, God, what are you up to? What what are you doing now? How much more can we take? I feel like that. Do you feel that lately? Or not lately, but the last year or so? I feel like every headline, I'm like, really? Again? We're doing this again? How much lower? How much longer will you carry and wait? And so in response to this longing of Daniel, God shares his plans for the future. This chapter, though, may not seem very relevant to us. It didn't seem relevant to me. I read it, I'm like, boring, to be honest. Can I, can I say that without sounding like bad as a pastor? I read chapter 11, I was like, oh, this is kind of a snooze fest, how am I gonna do this? While being faithful to this word. But this passage is actually extremely relevant because this chapter gives us perspective on the world. Knowing that no matter how bad things, got, things get in this world, God has good plans for it. And the same God who's working every single one of these events in chapter 11 is the same God who's working Dante Wright and George Floyd and Derek Chauvin's case and our issues with Russia and China and all the issues throughout the world and the pandemic. He is working all that just like he worked it all in chapter 11. And so as we go into chapter 11, into this specific time that actually eventually goes to the future and our future, it gives us a glimpse that that God is the same that we have today. He orchestrated the events back then for good purposes, and he's still doing the same. So that gives us great hope. And also, this chapter answers the question, what is the secret to standing faithfully in the midst of the most horrible trials you can ever imagine? What is the secret to standing with hope and joy and faithfulness in the midst of the greatest trials? So if you're taking notes, that's a question. You can look in this chapter and say, what's the secret? Because I want all of us to stand, not only in the final day, in that final trial, but also every day when we have trials come to us. So let me give you a general overview of this chapter because it's 45 verses and we're not going to go verse by verse. There's too much. So there's three main sections. In the first section, it's just going to be about the Near East. So we're going to talk about Egypt, uh, Greece, Alexander Great, and all that kind of stuff. And then we're going to move to the star of this passage, or the anti-star the great villain, Antiochus Epiphany. And then finally, we're going to move beyond Antiochus Epiphany in the final section about who Antiochus Epiphany is pointing to ultimately. He's just the foreshadow of the ultimate, 
the Antichrist. And so this passage is, is a little tricky, and a lot of scholars debate it because it talks about past events, but also future events. And sometimes it's a little hairy and tricky to figure out which one he's speaking about at that time. So I'm going to do my best. Also want to give you a heads up, we're going to primarily be in the New Living Translation, because if, if I'm... Um, I bet that a lot of you aren't familiar with this passage, and the NLT is just, it just reads a little smoother. And so I think it's going to be helpful for you to track along. But I recommend ESV if you're going to study this chapter or all the other more uh, literal passages. All right, let's start in verse 2. Okay, starting verse 2, if you open your Bible in chapter 11, we're going to cover about 300 years of world history. Okay? And every line here is detailing huge events. So that only takes us like a second to read. But it's like cataclysmic, right? Like if you're like, uh, the capital was, um, you know, invaded, right? That's just like one line. It took you a, a second to say, but it like, it means a lot. and had a lot of repercussions. And that's what every line is going on. But Daniel in chapter 11 is not covering every event in all of history, but primarily selective history that is most relevant for the people of Israel. Especially those who are right north and south. Because Israel was extremely important in history and even today because it bridges continents. You know what I'm saying? Right there, Israel, and right under Egypt, connecting to Africa and everywhere up north, in Europe, in the Middle East. And so it is significantly um, throughout history because it was just this, this um, bridgeway to all these huge superpowers. Okay, so that's the history is going to be focused on there. The history here that is prophesied is so specific, so impeccable, so accurate that... Many critical, when I say critical, I mean liberal scholars who don't really believe and trust in the scriptures, believe it's made up after the fact. Because it's so spot on. So people say, there's no way God could have known this. There's no way Daniel could have written this accurately. So therefore, somebody must have wrote it after all these events happened. John Calvin, the famous scholar and pastor, actually, in his commentary, spends 40 pages breaking down each of the lines and the corresponding historical events that happened to show you how impeccable and how accurate this Bible is. So if you want to check that out, I highly recommend grab one of, your, grab one of those thousand-page book of um, John Calvin's commentary and enjoy going through that if you're into that. But I'm going to try to give you the main meat. So starting verse 2, we're going to go all the way to verse 20, just giving an overview, not going line by line, <clears throat> but highlighting a few. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Now, if any of you guys have seen the movie 300, um, this is Xerxes. Xerxes. Xerxes becoming, and this is really easy to see in history, he becomes the richest and he goes against Greece and he amasses huge armies and he fails. And right after him, at least right after in this text, skipping some history, because again, this chapter is selective. It's not perfectly going over every event that happened. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king will rise to power, who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he has set out to do. Now, who is this? Now, if you look at the next verse, it kind of opens it up to, to make it unmistakably clear who it is. Look at verse 4. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had. For his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Anyone have a guess who this is? 
Alexander the Great. And we know this in history that he actually had none of his kids or none of his family inherited the kingdom. Actually, his four greatest generals took the kingdom and they split it among themselves. And then people killed his wives and all of his concubines and all of his kids. This happened exactly as Daniel prophesied. And if you know the story of Alexander the Great, he took over the known world very quickly and then died very quickly at the age of 33, losing it all. And you see this early on in Daniel prophesying he's moving with speed and then it just collapses. Now for the rest of the section to the end of verse 20, we're going to focus on the kingdom of the north, which is Syria, ruled by the Seleucids. And then the kingdom of the south, South Egypt, ruled by Ptolemies. Okay, so two of the generals were um, were these two, and, and and this is what the chapter is going to focus on. Okay, the kingdom of the north and the south. For the next few verses, we're going to see a sequence of conflicts, wars, politics, temporary truces, but it never reaches a conclusion. It just goes back and forth. They, they, they even offer their daughters for marriage to bring peace, but that quickly changes. Backstabbing, I mean, crazy stuff, like crazy HBO kind of like war, kind of all that kind of politics, house of cards, you name it, like all of that is going on. But none of you guys watch those shows, so I just, I don't know why I even mentioned those things, right? <laughs> the back and forth is actually really relevant to us because what happens is that every single time it switches, it goes right back. The north takes over for a while. There's a period of prosperity. The north is kicking butt, ruling, peace, prosperity for the north. And then the south takes over. And then the south wins. And why is that relevant for us? It's because history is on repeat. Every single one of these events, in and of themselves, seems so significant. Like, right? Like, if you were living in that moment and another kingdom took over, like if U.S. was taken over by another country, it'd be holy, oh, oh my gosh, crazy, right? And in that moment, we're like, this is the end of the world. This is all we can think of, all we can talk about. But if you zoom out, just like we do in chapter 11, we see it switching back and forth. Another kingdom comes, another kingdom comes, another kingdom comes. And why is that relevant for us? It's relevant because we can be so caught up in the moments of our current events, can't we? We hear one headline and it just throws our hearts into anxiety. And we're told, told these messages, hey, vote for this president because if you vote for this president, he will save this country. Or if you vote for this president, he will ruin this country. We're saved. We're ruined, right? We have here these messages, but the reality is it's all clockwork. It's all cyclical. It's all going to go rise and fall, ebb and flow, and all of it is actually the same. The same old, same old. The same old, you just shift up the, shift the names, you shift the specifics, but the heart of it is the same. Evil kings will rise and fall, and all the things just happen. Dr. John Goldengate, one scholar, says this. And, and, and to, to preview before you read this, if you read this chapter, you're going to hear the kingdom, the kings of the north and south used often, but, but it's clearly that they're, they're different. The, the, the kingdom of the north and the, the king of the north will be brought up multiple times, and clearly it's a new king, but it's usually the same title, kingdom of the north. Why? Kingdom of the south. Why? There, I mean, there are many different kings represented by the north and south, and this is his point. 
One effect of calling each succession of monarchs by the same name, Northern and Southern King, is to underscore the unified and pointless nature of the story. If you lost the plot while reading this section, you're getting the point. There's no plot. Now that's not to say that history doesn't matter and all these details don't matter. God is in every one of these details working for good, big and small. But it's helpful for our hearts. It, it, it puts things in perspective. Perspective. Every frightening step or discouraging news story will ultimately pass. It's ultimately for good. And every dictator or evil system of justice will pass away. It seems like it won't. It seems like it's just going to get worse. But you know what? It will pass on and another will rise and history will be on repeat until Jesus comes back. And hopefully that kind of just puts us in perspective because right now we're just being thrown all of these facts and all of these stats and all of these headlines. And it, it can just make our hearts just faint and destabilize us. But the reality is God is working all for good and he is in charge of all these big movements. Now let's go to the focus of this chapter. <clears throat> Verse 20, no, 21, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. Epiphanes being the word revealed, revealed, God revealed. He thought very highly of himself. He was God in the flesh, he thought of himself. Verse 21, the next to come in power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. Antiochus was actually not next in line, but he took it from his nephew. He didn't do it with force. He did it with his speech. This is something that I want you to note as you read the next few verses that we're gonna cover and, and, and so on. One of the de defining characteristics of Antiochus and ultimately the Antichrist is decept deceptive, smooth speech. That's cunning. We can often think of the Antichrist or these great kings as just ruthless warrior dictators, and sometimes they are, but often underlying them is a very charismatic personality that makes and spins things that make it sound so good and right and attractive. And this is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's so good at that. You see this in verse 23. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances and what we see in history is that he'll make an alliance and it'll sound so good and peaceful. And then the moment he has the upper hand, he'll backstab and destroy that kingdom. He'll become strong despite having only a handful of followers. He'll go from a little to big. And eventually he's going to make war on the Ptolemies, and on, on Egypt in the south. And he wins at first. But then, look at verse 29 and 30. We're skipping verse 28. He's going to win the first time and then the second time. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south. But this time, the result will be different. Why? Because warships from the western coastlands, which is ultimately going to be Rome, will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant, against Israel, and reward those who forsake the covenant. Okay, so this is what's going on. And Titus Epiphanes has a very successful, rich campaign against south, the south. And then later on, he goes again. But this time, Rome intervenes. And Rome, what the general does is they take Antiochus. And, and check it, imagine the scene in your mind. Antiochus goes before this Roman ruler. And the Roman ruler walks up and draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, do not leave that circle until you decided what you're going to do. If you leave that circle and decide to attack Egypt, you're done. We're taking your kingdom. And Antiochus Epiphanes actually grew up in Rome. He knows the power of Rome. 
he puts his tail between his legs and runs home. And as he runs home back to the north, he stops in Israel. And in Israel, there was a back, the backstory is this, that there was a rumor that Antiochus Epiphany was actually assassinated. So there was a small Jewish uprising. And Antiochus Epiphany, humiliated, humiliated, freshly off defeat, sees this rebellion, and he vents his full wrath on Israel. He goes crazy on Israel. He takes away all of their privileges as a people. And this is what we see him do in verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now we went to the ESV because I want to use this language, abomination of desolation. So what he does is this. He removes their ability to receive forgiveness of sins. Think about that. Imagine if someone had the power to remove your ability to receive forgiveness of sins. No one can, but imagine if that could happen. The devastation. Not only does he remove that and stop it, he replaces it with sacrificing a pig on the altar, which is breaking so many OT laws. And not only that, he erects a statue of Zeus in God's temple. In God's temple. Zeus. This is, for us, it's hard to grasp because we don't have sacred space in our culture, right? It's, it's hard. And every single illustration I thought of to explain to you this, I cannot speak in your hearing because it'd be so inappropriate. That, that's the, the only illustrations that could come close to getting a grasp of how um, incredibly insane this situation would have been. I can't speak in your hearing because of the mixed audience because it would just be so perverse and and. And some of you guys would get mad at me. But, but just imagine the outrage of this. And what he did is he took, got rid of the high priest and found a high priest who would bow towards his ways. A high priest who would, who would be sympathetic to his, his new religion that he instates. Now let's look at verse 32. This is one of the, the key verses in our chapter, okay? If you haven't been paying attention for whatever reason... I, I beg of you to, to lock in right now. Verse 32. <clears throat> he will flatter, again, remember speech, and win over those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. That's such a good verse. Highlight that verse. Underline it. Notice again, his weapons are primarily speech. He deceives and uses flattery to win over the people. But notice this line, but the people who know their God. Will you read that with me? But the people who know their God will be strong and resistant. So what is the key? What is the secret for you to be strong and resist in the most horrific persecutions and trials? What's the secret? Knowing God. Knowing God is the secret. This is my prayer for everyone here and anyone who's watching. That we know God. And because we know Him and we have an intimacy with Him, it will result in strength and an ability to resist the deceptions of this world and deceptions of the Antichrist spirit. In this passage, Antiochus Epiphanes, 
It's talking about him. But it's ultimately pointing to the final Antiochus, the Antichrist, the Antichrist spirit. What, what is this Antichrist spirit? Let's look at 1 John 4. If you're like, why are you sounding all like weird and like YouTube conspiracy? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Just think, take that word Antichrist, Antichrist, against Christ, against his ways, against what he loves, about what he hates. Which you heard was coming and now is in the word one day? No, already. This Antichrist spirit has always been in this world. It's already here. It's behind every major movement in the world, every despicable king. This is Nebuchadnezzar on repeat. This is everything that we see going on in our current events, the Antichrist spirit. So how do you resist that Antichrist spirit? You have to know God. And note this. Please hear me, church. The Antichrist spirit is trying to disciple you. Is trying to shape you. All of us here are being shaped. We're either being shaped by the Holy Spirit into becoming more like Jesus, or you are being passively being shaped by the Antichrist spirit to embrace his ways. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. Literally, every single one of you in this room right now, anyone listening, every single one of us right now are being currently shaped in one or the other. The image of Christ or the image of the Antichrist. There's no passivity. There's no middle ground. We're like, oh, I'm neutral. I just don't get shaped. You are being shaped. And if you don't think you're being shaped, you are definitely being shaped by the Antichrist spirit. It's active or passive, one or the other. And the only way you can resist this Antichrist spirit and stand in that day is knowing God. Unless you are daily bowing before the king, listen, you're going to bow before the Antichrist. If you struggle with timidity and bowing to the fear of man at your workplace or your family, I can almost guarantee you don't spend time on your knees. Because if you are bowing before the king, then the world becomes smaller and he becomes greater. Then you can stand with courage. But if you're constantly afraid, oh, this is my personality type, Sam, I, I'm just timid and I don't want to tell people about Jesus and I'm afraid of what my friends will think and, and I'm passive. When they, no, no, you're not spending time beholding him. You don't know him really then. This, let me share a passage of one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon. Check this quote out. He who comes forth fresh from beholding the face of God will never fear the face of man. Keep going. If we dwell with him, we shall catch the heroic spirit. And to us, a world of enemies will be but as the drop of a bucket. A countless array of men, or even of devils, will seem as little to us as the nations are to God. And he counts them only as grasshoppers. I want that for you. Church, this is so urgent. In the times we're living in, if, if I'm discerning, I, I think I have eyes to see the times Things are going to get worse for us. For Christians, they're going to get worse for us. There's going to be increasing clarity on who is the true bride of Christ and who are the imposters. And if you are not daily beholding God, you will bow to the world in its ways. You will make compromises. You will not have strength in that day. Church, do you really know him? I mean, like, really know him intimately. Or do you know sports more? Or your career more? Or hobbies more? 
or media more. Let me be clear, this is not about knowing facts. It's not about knowing historical facts. You know what the Jews knew about God? They knew of him, but so many of them did not know him. Knowing him throughout the scriptures is an intimate reality. It's a heart that is vulnerable and open to him that's about his ways and knowing his heart and knowing what he loves and knowing what he hates. Church, I urge you to commit yourself to knowing God and enjoying God more than anyone and everything. Know God more than anyone or everything. This is so convicting to me. I thought to myself, I was prepping, oh, Sam, do not be a hypocrite. Is this true of you right now? I don't know if it's fully true of me right now. I ebb and flow like you do probably. Church, freshly commit yourself to know him more than you know anything and everybody and anything and love him more than you know, love anyone or anything. Sure, know about current events. Know about your job. Be excellent in what you do. Enjoy your hobbies. Sure. But don't let any of them come even close to how much you know and love God. And that's not easy to do. You can't passively put God first. You have to be active because the spirit of the Antichrist is constantly trying to shape us. So unless you're actively fighting against it, actively getting in this word, you're going to be passively being shaped. Church, if he's not more important than anyone or everything, then you have active idols in your life that you are prioritizing over him. Church, I, I, I know that a lot of you can be exasperated by me, probably out of all the other pastors, because I'm always like, come on, guys, let's do this thing. Hey, here's a Bible reading plan. Here's this new reading thing, or here's this new, hey, here's Secret Church on Friday. You're like, oh, oh, oh. But you know what all, my, all of this is? This is my heart saying, I just want you to know God more than anything else. That's all it is. And I'm not going to always get it right. I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm not going to always be worth imitating in every way. But that's my heart. And some of you guys just ignore me. And if you're knowing God more than anyone and anything, then that's fine. You can ignore me. But most of you who ignore me and these calls to try these initiatives or go to secret church or read your Bible, and you guys have all these excuses, you don't know God more than, than anything else. And that's why I keep saying these things. If we were crushing it and loving it more than anything, I wouldn't say anything. I don't need a shepherd. But the reality is we have such a mixed church we have idols galore, and I'm just begging God, and I'm trying to be a priest for you. I'm trying to shepherd you. And so when you go before the word, let not the first question be, what does it mean to me? Or how is this relevant for, for my life? But who are you, God? What's your heart? I need, I need to know you. That's why whenever you do the four questions, the first question should be really, God, what does this teach me about God? That's the kind of knowing I want, not just knowing facts or being able to regurgitate verses, but actually knowing him intimately. And if you don't know God like this, you will collapse on that day. On that final day when persecution hits the fan, you're going to bow because you've already been bowing. You're either going to bow before God because you've been bowing before him and standing in resistance, or you're going to bow to the Antichrist because you've already been bowing in your heart for years. You've been making compromises for years. You've been choosing your own pleasure or your own career or your own whatever it is over him. You will choose what you've already been choosing. Don't be deceived as if one day you're going to just stand up with all this courage and be faithful to God. If you're not faithful in the morning, tomorrow, 
or faithful when you're tired or hangry or when you're tempted or God forbid when you're horny if you're not faithful now you will not be faithful then don't kid yourself if you don't serve others or love people when they hurt you now you're not going to do it then when it's even ramped up and so church, that's that's my heart for you. Whenever you, if you guys ever feel like, oh, Sam's always like trying to do these, you know, trying to, it's because that's my heart for you. I want you to stand on that final day, and I know that not all of us will. And I pray that all of us will. That's what my heart is. If you bow to the Antichrist spirit now and ultimately to whoever the Antichrist is and over how that ever that's manifested, I have confusion, questions about that, you may succeed for a while. Because it even says in that passage, he will reward those who forsake the covenant. But at the end of the day, it will come to you. And I don't want that for you. And hopefully I don't, I didn't put you off church in, in that, what I just did. That, that, that is just my earnest heart for you. For you to wake up if you're sleeping. Let's look at verse 33. Let's learn about some people who knew God. They did not bow to the Antichrist or to Antiochus in that time. Would you guys read this with me while I drink water? <laughs> Wise leaders. Who is this speaking of? Let me share a really epic story about the Maccabeans. You guys heard about the Maccabees? This story can be found in the Apocrypha, which is not in our Bibles, but it can be helpful history. And this story is so epic. Let me just put, put it on the screen and we can read it together, um, or I'll read it to you because it's just so long. But let me set the stage. Antiochus has already set his new religion. He's already put the, new, the sacrifices to a halt and he's altered their whole religion. Okay, 1 Maccabees 2.15. Check this out. The king's officer, officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the town of Modin to make them offer sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Matthias and his sons were assembled. Then the king's officer spoke to Matthias as follows. You are a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the people of Judah and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king. See, the deception, the reward. And you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, Even all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors. I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer a sacrifice to the altar in Modin, according to the king's command. Real, real pop, quick pause. Matthias refuses to bow his knee and to compromise. And then another Jew says, I will. Which one will we be? Verse 24, when Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him to, on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phineas did against Zimri, son of Saul. Saul. 
Then Matthias cried out in town with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Then he and his sons fled to the hills, left all that they had in the town. At that time, many who were seeking righteousness and justice went down to the wilderness to live there. So cool, huh? But sad. Most of these men knew God, and so they began a revolution that restored worship and purity in Israel for many years. Though they were small, God granted them favor, and ultimately we hear this this, this culminated in this, the, the miracle, miracle of Hanukkah. Look at verse 34 back in Daniel. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere. I think that's really important, because even though they had temporary success, they had an imperfect savior, Judas Maccabeus, one of the sons of Matthias, and they had imperfect followers. Salvation was still wanting, still yet to come. But please note what happens in verse 35. What is the result for those who are persecuted? And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. So what's the result of those who are persecuted? Cleansed, refined, made pure until the end. Who are the wise here? It's those who know God. That's how this passage speaks of them. But what we see about those who actually know God, it says they may struggle. And the ESV says stumble. I think I may have deleted it in my notes and on the screen, but the next verses, it makes clear that these people will struggle and stumble. But you know what? One of the main fruits of those who actually know God is that when they fall, they get back up. And they will stumble. They will struggle. They will doubt. They will have times where they ebb and flow and they, they walk away, but they always come back. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And they, and in the words of, of the disciples, who shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And so persecution makes them stronger. It purifies them. But for those who actually don't know God, persecution exposes them. Hardship exposes them. When you get church hurt and you walk away from Jesus, it exposes you. When your prayers go unanswered for a little season and you run out of patience, it exposes you. All these things expose you. Trial and hardship and if you walk away in the moment of trial, then it shows that you actually didn't really know him. And that is terrifying. That's what's terrifying for me, for some of you. Now we're going to go on to the, one of the most controversial portions of this chapter. And I'm going to give you just a general picture of the different positions and then share with you where I'm at. Um, I know some of you guys, if you're prophecy buffs are going to be like, Sam, there's so much you're not sharing. Sorry, we don't have time for that. So, some people take this next section to be speaking about all events that's already happened in Antiochus Epiphanes. Others take it as events that happened in that time, but also happened fully in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple, or the second temple. And finally, my position is that it's all of the above and yet to come. Okay? All of the above and yet to go. This section of this chapter is speaking about what has happened, what happened in 70 AD, 
and Antiochus Epiphanes and what will still happen that we're waiting for. And I think that because there's so much debate on this chapter proves that there's more future events because if everything happened historically, then we could just easily just point down the line and just match it up. But we also see Jesus and Paul speaking of cert certain language and phrases in this chapter and speaking it in a future sense. And one thing that's important to note is that the Bible is not only about what happened, but it's about what always happens. Let me say that again. The Bible is not what just happened, but what always happens. In other words, it's all cyclical. Every single event that happens has ancient roots. The same heart, the same Babylonian heart, the Tower of Babel heart that Nebuchadnezzar has and all the other leaders that follow him have, all of it is has happened and is always happening, even now. And what we see in this chapter, I believe, is, is maybe a category that maybe some of you don't have. And different theologians call it different things, but you can call it double fulfillment or near-far prophecy. Double fulfillment or near-far prophecy. In other words, it's that prophecy that happened, that, that is, is, is made, and it kind of is partially fulfilled, but it's ultimately pointing to a fuller fulfillment. And it might happen multiple times. A prophecy may be happening, it's kind of fulfilled, and it's also kind of fulfilled, but it's still waiting for the full fulfillment. Just like Christ has echoes throughout Scripture, a lot of saviors of Israel are little pictures, little echoes of Christ. The fullness hasn't come until Christ comes the first time. Um, and so that, that's kind of the category. Hopefully that's helpful for you if you're confused. So this next section, I believe, is talking about both Antiochus Epiphanes, but ultimately about the Antichrist who's going to come. Okay, verses 36 through 45. Let's look at the heart of this figure. We're not going to go every verse, but look at the heart of this verse. Verse 36. Would you read this out loud? The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god. Even blasphemy without gods. Does this language sound familiar? If you know your Bible, this sounds very much like the serpent. What's the, what's the first commandment in the Satanic Bible? Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. And this is the heart of Antiochus Epiphany and ultimately the Antichrist. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to magnify himself over every god, even the god of gods. And he's going to speak astonishing, blasphemous things. Boasting. His tongue. It's a big deal. The tongue and, and how he speaks. This is Nebuchadnezzar all over again and all also every demonic speak, spirit and every self-exalting king and leader of the world. You see the similar temptation that happened in the garden. What's that temptation in the garden? If you eat this fruit, you will be what? Like God. That's the heart of the Antichrist spirit and the Antichrist ultimately. And the same thing we see in Babel. We will make a name for ourselves. Remember, the Bible is not just what happened, but what always happens. This is what always happens every single day in every major event and minor. But verse 45 is very important and encouraging. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain, Jerusalem, and the sea, and will pitch his royal tents. And this is totally future, I believe. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out, and no one will help him. Antiochus is enjoying, enjoying 
in the Antichrist is will enjoy a reign of terror that we cannot even imagine, that we've never seen. Horrible, persecuting, terrifying, despicable reign. And when it seems like all hope is lost, it'll come to an end. His time is appointed. Sometimes it feels like the troubles of the world are never ending. I said that in the beginning, and I feel that all the time. It feels like it can only get worse, right? Another mass shooting, another tragedy, another injustice, another thing that makes our hearts faint. But know well, church, that God has appointed an end date. He has appointed a date when evil will stop. Verse 36 says this, For what has been determined will surely take place. Jesus will return, and he will judge and destroy death, Satan, and all who follow him, and peace will result. And please note, it will not be a struggle for Jesus. It won't be like, oh no, he's, oh, he's, oh, Satan got him. Oh, it's going to be like that. When, when God said enough, it's enough. It's done. Evil will stop, and he will reign forevermore. Mark chapter 13, we can't get into a lot of details, but if you want to flip over to it, it's going to talk about this intense time of persecution and tribulation when the Antichrist is persecuting the church and wrecking the world. But verse 24 through 27 is the great hope that we have. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Remember Daniel 7? This is going to happen. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Church, this is going to happen. Jesus, the Son of Man, will come in glory on clouds. And when he comes, he's going to take up all of his elect people. And who are his elect people? Those who know him. Those who actually know him. And have resisted the Antichrist spirit. And he will live and reign in peace with him forever on this earth. So church, how can you get ready for that final day, this terrible day, if we're alive? If Jesus comes in our lifetime and all of these events happen, whatever they may actually look like, it's a little hard to understand with this illustrative language that's trying to get at the heart of everything. I don't fully understand it, to be honest. How do you get ready for that day? Give yourself to knowing God. Church, give yourself to it. Above everything, above your health, above your wealth, above your careers, above anything. To know him, to make him known, enjoy him more than anyone or anything. And to do that is distinct. It's not an accident. It's active. It's intentional. It's, it's unmistakable. You can't be like, is that person doing it or not? I can't really tell. You know when you see someone's doing that. And you can pick off the phonies if you actually know God. I don't want to be cruel. I'm not trying to put you down. And if some of you guys feel like, man, Sam, you're so picking on us. Like, would you just stop preaching? Leave us alone. And I'm saying I love you so much. And I don't want you to fall on that day. I, don't, I want you to stand. I want you to resist and take action. The only way that can happen is if you actually know him and trust him with everything. And if you do, you will stand firm, though you may stumble at times. But if you don't know him, you're going to crumble. 
But know this, that God is eager for you to know him. He has removed every barrier that separates you from him. He sent his own son to die the death that you and I deserve for our rebellion. And he took it all on himself on the cross so that if you trust him and obey him, he will fill you with his spirit. He will forgive you and you will get to know him, the greatest, most wonderful being forever and ever. And if you're not sure that's you, please, please talk to someone here. Or if you're truly loving him and knowing him, but you know you've regressed and you've let other things get in the way, like I think I, maybe that's true of me right now, talk to someone, confess that. Know that God already knows that and he's faithful and just just take you right in his arms. He wants you to know him, church. Isn't that beautiful? He wants you to know him. And he's eager and ready. So let's pray. Father, I, I don't want my people to feel beat up by me. I, want, I just want to show up on that final day with all of them with me. I don't want to lose any of them. And I'm afraid I may right now. So Lord, would you pour out your spirit and be merciful to us? If there's anything that I said that was unfaithful to your scriptures, would you totally erase it and correct me? But Lord, all that is true, let it deeply shape us. Lord, we, we don't want to be shaped by the Antichrist spirit. We want to be shaped by your spirit. So I pray, welcome your Holy Spirit. Just welcome your moving, your convicting to come right now and shape our hearts. Reorient our affections upward. Please, Holy Spirit, welcome you to move right now among us. Let no heart resist him. Let every heart say yes to him. In Jesus' name, amen.